we do have to out hustle and, and do it better than our competitors. And when you're sitting with 500, 600, 700 households, it's just simple math. You cannot do a financial plan and meet with clients doing reviews, do everything that comes uh, for that client when you have that many clients in your book. Uh, we've implemented book segmentation and what we have done is uh, assisted advisors in creating manageable practices. Well, the discovery process is so important, but if you're a process-driven advisor, you can win all the assets and become the trusted advisor. A digital culture is a productive culture. So if you think about a business plan for a second, there are really only five levers or areas of improvement that you can focus on in a business plan. You have to build in the structure and the process and that discipline it takes to be an advisory-oriented financial consultant. It's just not a flip of the switch. And really, in my opinion, if a program out there has not made the switch, they're not only late, I think they've missed it. The highest producers had less households, and they never once asked if they could have those small accounts back. Having advisors not be transactional on a monthly basis to increase their income is a big challenge, and that's part of variable comps. Now, I know some of my colleagues have said, well, isn't that dangerous to ask the, the advisors to set their own production goal? I will say in the almost 10 years I've been doing this, I've never had a financial advisor give me a goal less than what I was going to assign them. What we did at Fulton is we built it into a, a deferred discretionary plan. The number of plans as well as the amount of advisory business that's done. And then I also want to ask them about their insurance business because uh, the number of insurance cases is really a, a key performance indicator for me to know if, if they're a financial advisor or if they're a true life planner and they're taking that extra step to, to look at the client's situation holistically. Hello and welcome to the Stathis Mattel Industry Leadership and Success Podcast Series for the Financial Institution Wealth Management Channel. I am Bob Mattel, the co-producer of these podcasts. Our focus in this series is on industry-leading performance, success stories, and key business intelligence that will help you meet your leadership objectives and help our channel achieve its full potential. Today's podcast will be a discussion with some of our channel's most successful program managers based on Bank Investment Consultants 2020 Top Program Manager Rankings. When assessing these rankings and looking only at banks that use third-party broker-dealers, we noticed that five out of the top 10 program managers from these banks were from Raymond James programs. Separately, and as impressively, we noticed that if you filter for just broker-dealers that serve the bank channel, Raymond James is number one in both the J.D. Power 2020 Advisor Satisfaction Surveys and their 2020 Client Satisfaction Survey. Given these impressive accomplishments, we are appreciative that the Raymond James team agree to work with us to produce a podcast featuring insights from five of their top program managers from the bank channel. These managers will all introduce themselves to us shortly. Our host today is Scott Stathis of Stathis Partners, and Tim Kilgore and Steve Crutching from Raymond James will be our co-hosts. Scott and I would like to express our gratitude to Raymond James for their support in making today's podcast possible. And now I'll turn it over to our host, Scott Stathis. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of the Industry Leadership and Success Podcast Series. I am Scott Stathis of Stathis Partners, and I'm honored and excited to be with today's group of executives who are some of the top investment program managers in the bank channel. They will all introduce themselves momentarily. 
it is not a coincidence that all the program managers with us today are from Raymond James programs. As mentioned in the intro, when looking at only the banks that use third-party broker-dealers in the bank investment consultant top program manager rankings, five out of the top 10 program managers from these banks are from Raymond James programs. For those of us who study the bank channel, it has been known for years that Raymond James programs have consistently had some of the highest producing advisors. In fact, many of the program managers with us today have average advisor production of over half a million dollars. Today, we will dive into some of the elements that contribute to their success. And as previously mentioned, Raymond James has graciously agreed to co-host today's discussion. So I will let our co-hosts introduce themselves, and then we will meet our program managers. So uh, Tim, would you like to kick us off? Great. Thanks, Scott. And uh, thanks for having us here today. Um, my name is Tim Kilgore. I head up the financial institutions division at Raymond James and uh, am, am lucky enough to support some great institutions, uh, banks and credit unions all across the country. And you know, the group here today uh, is just a fantastic group of leaders that lead some of our best programs out there. And I can tell you that they're all focused on quality growth for their institutions, advisor development. Uh, and really serving uh, the needs of clients. So um, we appreciate uh, them taking the time to, to have this chat with us today. And I'd also like to welcome uh, Steve Crookton from the Raymond James team. Steve is a recent join to uh, the Raymond James FID organization, and he oversees our central region. So I'll let him uh, introduce himself. Yeah, good afternoon, everybody. And again, thank you for having us. Uh, as Tim mentioned, I am the division director for the central division, part of our financial institution division here at Raymond James. I get to work with the banks and the financial institutions representing the central part of the country from Minnesota down through Oklahoma. Thanks, Tim. And thanks, Steve. So let's meet our program managers and um, let's start with Gary. All right. Good afternoon. Um, again, my name is Gary Collier. I am with Pinnacle Financial Partners based out of Nashville, Tennessee, and I am a producing manager. And um, so I have some different insights and in how I really... Um, approach the position. We're a group that has about $4.8 billion in asset under management, and we have 45 financial consultants that work for us throughout five states in the southeastern United States. About 70% of our business is advisory. In our total group, we have around 75 total employees in Pinnacle Asset Management. Thank you, Gary. Uh, Mike George. Good afternoon. This is uh, Mike George. I'm with uh, Fulton Bank, Fulton Financial Advisors and uh, Program Manager. We have about uh, $30 million in uh, annual revenue with about 55 advisors in five states, and we're based out of Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We've got about $4.3 billion in assets under management, and uh, roughly about 65% of our business is advisory business. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. All right, Mike. Thank you. Paul? Thank you. I'm Paul Haynes. I'm the Managing Director for Middleburg Financial, which is the wealth management arm for Atlantic Union Bank. Uh, we're a program of about 20 financial advisors, $1.6 in assets under management, and about $10 million in annual revenue. 82% uh, of our business is advisory and with a heavy focus on financial planning. Thanks, Paul. Scott? Thank you very much for letting me be a part of this podcast. Uh, my name is Scott Jenner. I'm the president of Addison Avenue Investment Services, which is the investment services arm of First Tech Federal Credit Union. We have 30 advisors, 29 licensed sales assistants, and we operate in eight states, although we're licensed in all 50. Our current assets under management are about 
4.2 billion, slightly over. Our trailing 12 is approaching 29 million. 91% of that is recurring revenue, and 75% of that is fee-based business. All right, thank you, Scott. And Michael. Thank you, Scott. My name is Michael Tatori. I work at First Hawaiian Bank, and I'm the uh, program manager for First Hawaiian Advisors. We have about $2 billion in assets, 20 advisors. About 40 to 45% of our revenue is from managed assets. All right. Thank you, guys. And it's great to be here with you today. And um, I'd like to, as always, start with a, a big picture question. And that is, if you, if you look at the, the top program manager rankings in Bank Investment Consultant, they're based on, among other things, uh, average production per advisor, as well as year-over-year increases in production and, and AUM. As I just mentioned, Raymond James advisors have consistently been the most productive advisors in the channel. So I'd love to know what you guys attribute that to, and what about your, your partnership and teamwork with Raymond James contributes most significantly to, to that success? And I think, Mike, George, you, you wanted to kick us off. Thanks, Scott. You know, outside of hiring the right people, coming up with the right compensation plan, you know, advisors desire to do what they do best. That's meet with clients and guide them and coach them to the right decisions. Some of the challenges we found in advisor productivity are things around administrative duties, time involved in processing, and the ongoing regulatory changes. And when I really thought about, you know, what we think drives our productivity, you know, I'd highlight our biggest key is, uh, you know, retention of our advisors, which impacts client retention. It comes hand in hand. But beyond the compensation, as I mentioned before, advisors want to feel supported and having cutting edge resources. And that's really where our partnership with Raymond James comes into play. But more importantly, it's how we leverage those resources. You know, we work hard to create a culture that allows our advisors to be productive. And that aligns with our partnership, as I mentioned with Raymond James. But in my opinion, our secret ingredient is, you know, our operations team led by Jen Schwebel. She's taken advantage of a lot of the resources and packaged them up for our 55 advisors in our five states. And from her perspective, a digital culture is a productive culture. And as a branch, earlier in the year, we moved to become a fully electronic branch within Raymond James. We're actually in the final stages of that project now, which in coincidence worked out well with the, uh, the current pandemic and working relationships that we have with our, with our staff. But here are some of the highlights of the Raymond James technology resources that we packaged together that have impacted what we think are productivity for advisors. Uh, we're leveraging e-signature, the function from the client onboarding, the maintenance documents, and the annuity order system. This reduces the number of times that we have to touch or our advisors have to touch documents, and it really eliminates human error and streamlines the approval process. We're utilizing various functions within CRM, including the task and workflow functions. And this assists our advisors in creating the touch points that create a personalized experience while assisting the teams uh, you know, in the environment to stay connected. And I think the email track feature, along with uh, that assist in mitigating the risk and the documenting our client discussions, again, a big time saver. And I think we continue to save time in the process. It allows our advisors to think more big picture about the practice. We also have been leveraging advisor mobile. And again, that assists our FAs in keeping their practice mobile. Uh, the talk and text feature, for example, allows notes and be you know, talked in and assisted in several, as several of our FAs as they multitask. Again, a big time saver. So, you know, finally, creating advisor efficiencies is really a big thing that I think that has helped us uh, connect and help grow our practice and helping advisors feel like they're being supported with administrative staff. 
But in conclusion, I think, you know, one of the other concepts we just launched is uh, we've implemented book segmentation. And what we have done is uh, assisted advisors in creating manageable practices, obviously enabling them to grow and, 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 you know, top segment and cultivate new advisor talent, as well as work the top of their book. And it also assists in mitigating risk and devotes time where it makes most sense. And recently, we partnered with Touchstone Investments and the PAR program in a partnership with Raymond James. Editorial note, the Practice Analysis Review, or PAR program, is an advisor business optimization program offered by Touchstone Investments that focuses on transition from brokerage to advisory, increasing the profitability of client relationships, and improving book efficiencies. And what that does is creates an individual dashboard one-on-one for the FA, indicating advisory opportunity, book optimization, and client optimization. So there's just some of the thoughts I thought that were outside the box that we've been leveraging uh, to kind of help give our advisors more time to do what they enjoy uh, and be more impactful to their clients. Yeah, wow. That's, so th- there's a ton of good stuff there, right? So your initial emphasis was on advisory efficiency, which uh, obviously is, is a big deal. Uh, but then you touched on segmentation. So these these are things that I'd, I'd, I'd really like to dive into during our, our discussion today. So the other thing that um, you didn't imply, but I know exists, is that, you know, if you look at advisor success, there are, you know, two primary components. One is that they work very efficiently, but the other is that they're very good at developing relationships, right? So I'm assuming, uh, Mike, that some of the technology that you just mentioned that you're leveraging also enables your advisors to be more efficient at developing relationships with their clients, understanding more about their clients, et cetera. Is that correct? Absolutely. And I, you know, what I didn't really touch on is, you know, the explosion of utilization of these tools given the COVID pandemic. And, you know, we had a lot of uh, late bloomers to the game with some of this. And so we started to prescribe this and package it up with trainings and leveraging those resources. And that's really, uh, that's helped to continue to grow these relationships. These tools are designed to help do all of that. Yeah. So, so let me ask you kind of a layering question and I'd love to hear from the rest of you um, just kind of dovetailing off of what Mike just put out there. Um, But one of the things that we know in the bank channel is that historically our advisors have been very transactional in nature and the better programs uh, are moving their advisors to be more relationship based, right? Get a better understanding of their clients, leverage financial planning and working with them based on the plan, et cetera, right? But that's been a very tough transition. And I know when I look at the stats that the majority of programs in the bank channel have not really gotten there yet. They're making progress, but they have not gotten there yet. So what have you leveraged to enable your advisors to go from transactional orientation to relationship orientation? Is it just recruiting or have you had a lot of initiatives that you've leveraged Raymond James for? Just touch on that for me. And, and you know, I'll, I'll kind of throw it out there uh, to, to all of you. I, I know, I think Michael T, you wanted to say something about that as well, but just love, love to hear thoughts from all of you on that. I'll jump in first. Um, You know, I think our program has had uh, some success in this area. And quick background, you know, we've only been with Raymond James for about three years. And prior to to working with Raymond James, we were exactly what you described. We were that commission-based transactional program. We had virtually zero managed money. 
And you know, I just took a look at our trailing 12 month numbers uh, and fees from our managed accounts now represent between 40 and 45% of our program's fees. That's up from virtually zero. And every quarter it's increasing as a percent. So you know, we're, we're very happy with the direction we're going. And I think really we can trace back the successful transition really to three things. The first is we, we have that vision. As you mentioned, it's the direction that the industry is going. And we worked hard and very intentionally to create a, a culture where holistic financial planning, long-term relationships is really that touchstone uh, for the program. And you know, to that end, we were very consistent in our messaging, our training, uh, and really emphasizing the value that it brings, frankly, to the clients. You know, the next step after the vision was the implementation. And I think that's twofold. One is we do have an experienced management team. Uh, you know, our sales managers, we call them regional business managers. They do joint calls with clients. They do case analysis with advisors and really help to mentor the team. And again, underscore the importance of financial planning and long-term relationships. And absolutely key to the implementation is the partnership with Raymond James. The Raymond James platform provides our advisors with you know, access to products and services that, that frankly, other bank channels don't have access to and puts us on par with any, any of our local competitors. So we're very happy with that. The third part to this after vision and implementation is culture. And it's really for us, it's not just our program's culture, but really First Wine Bank's larger culture. And First Wine has been around since 1858. So over 160 years. And we are literally, you know, that island in the middle of the Pacific. So having these long-term relationships with our customers and frankly, their heirs is going to be key for us to be successful in the long term. And the truth of the matter is, you know, this relationship-based culture for the bank is much more aligned with this advisory uh, relationship-based culture that we're looking to cultivate and move toward with our uh, investment program. Yeah, great. Sounds like you're, you're really headed in a, in a good direction. Gary, it, did you have uh, a few thoughts you wanted to contribute? I was just going to add it. It's, it's a lot more than just converting from a transaction oriented to an advisory orientation to be a fee-based firm. You have to change your whole process and how you work. Whereas you have to build in the structure and the process and that discipline it takes to be an advisory oriented financial consultant. It's just not a flip of the switch. And really, in my opinion, if a program out there has not made the switch, they're not only late, I think they've missed it. Yeah, so, uh, so this discussion has brought up a few thoughts that are completely related. Um, and, you know, certainly the reference that has been made a couple times now to financial planning is at the heart of it. So if you look at the way our advisors in the channel used to work, and, and that is, now I'm referring to their transactional nature, you know, certainly that's not aligned with financial planning. Uh, and, and more importantly, if, uh, if you look at, you know, what I'll call the broad and shallow approach to being a transactional advisor, right? You're just moving on to your, to your next transaction. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't accommodate relationship-based selling. But more importantly, um, we've gone from, or historically speaking, we've had advisors that have had whatever, 750 clients in their book, right? Some of them have 1,200. It's, it's, it's literally ridiculous. You cannot serve that many clients efficiently. So what you end up doing is 
uh, over-serving the clients on the low end of your book and, and under-serving the ones on the upper end of your book that have much more sophisticated needs uh, related to their assets, right? So bringing in financial planning into the equation, I mean, we've gone through four waves of financial planning in our channel, right? The first pushback that we got with financial planning is that it takes too much time and it's too hard to learn. I think we've gotten a lot of our advisors past that, but the point of that is you don't have enough hours in the day to do a plan for all of your clients if you have 750 in your book, right? And nor do all of your clients in your book need a financial plan. However, if you're an advisor that's focused on financial planning, you, you, you by nature have to do book segmentation, right? To work efficiently. So the question is, how do you do that? I mean, I know you can do it with recruiting the right advisors, but you know, I don't think all of you just changed over all of your advisors, right? So when you have advisors that are used to being transactional in nature, that are not used to spending what probably is an average of eight hours a year per client, if you look at it holistically, uh, how do you get them to do that? Because that implies that they're going to be dropping a lot of clients to be able to focus on the clients that truly uh, have more sophisticated situations, have a need for financial planning, et cetera, right? So how have you made that transition? Any thoughts? This is Mike. Yeah. Um, I'll just jump in. What we did at Fulton is we built it into a, a deferred discretionary plan. The number of plans as well as the amount of advisory business that's done. Because I think, you know, as part of the culture is important at the early stages, having advisors not be transactional on a monthly basis to increase their income is a big challenge. And that's part of variable comp. So by doing that, it allowed us to have our advisors start to think long term. And then one, once we started to get a, a few buying into it, it, it really took off into a more of a domino effect. And then we got to leverage that because a lot of those folks, we would measure the GPMs that they were doing on a monthly basis. And um, we were able to track that. And then our sales managers would be able to have coaching conversations about that. I just want to add a context note here that GPMs is goal planning and monitoring. The other thing that we found is the more GPMs and planning tools that we use, the more opportunity it was for us to go back and reference those plans and, and grow from the plans. Because I think a lot of people do a module and they don't do a secondary module. So it gives us an opportunity to coach and, and get people to think that way. And then they start to have some success. And as they start to have some success, they recognize that this business doesn't have to be so difficult and waiting for branch referrals all the time, that they can build their book and work with the book. And frankly, um, you know, we just did a, a study and almost 75% of our new revenue business comes from advisors working their book. Tim? Just to jump in, I mean, I think a, a, an important thing from the Raymond James standpoint is we, we are really, you know, we consider ourselves kind of pioneers in the planning uh, discipline in some ways. Uh, Bob James, who founded the firm, really believed in the value of a plan. And it's something we talk about over and over and over again. We've invested a lot in the platform. So whether it's GPM, which is goal planning and monitoring, which is the uh, financial planning tool that all our programs have access to, or the resources behind that. You know, our goal is just to provide access and support so that advisors who aren't attuned to doing that in their daily process can figure out how to incorporate it and build it out. And I do think the, the planning process is foundational to meeting client needs and, and really delivering the service that they expect. Uh, and so uh, the outcome a lot of times ends up being uh, more advisory assets, more managed money, which I think you see in a lot of these, you know, these programs that we have here today. But really, I think a lot from our standpoint, a lot of it just comes down to our heritage as a planning firm. 
and investing on that side significantly. Thanks. Thanks for that, Tim. Let's let's talk about increased client expectations because it's been applied a couple of times, right? So uh, I, I don't I don't think anybody will deny that that clients are expecting more today than they used to expect. It's almost like they've been um, conditioned from some of the technology that is at their fingertips to uh, expect more and more personalized service, right? Everything about technology these days is, is personalizing responsiveness. So how do you meet increased client expectations in a, in a competitive enough way to be differentiated? Paul, you had some thoughts on this, if I recall correctly? Yes, sir. There's really um, two managerial truths, as I'll call them. The first would be a recognition that our business is simple, but it isn't easy. And then the second is, you know, what you, what you just highlighted requires change. And the best change is when it's driven by or initiated by the financial advisors. So if you think about a business plan for a second, there are really only five levers or areas of improvement that you can focus on in a business plan. First, you can either introduce new products and service into their practice. Another lever is they can focus on ways to increase the number of appointments. They can work on increasing the size of their appointments. They can look for ways to find efficiencies to decrease the time between identifying an opportunity and closing it, or they can improve their win rate. I mean, that's basically it. And as I met with each of my financial advisors, really it boiled down to two things. One, if they weren't embracing financial planning, they all came to that conclusion that they needed to do more of it. And then the second part is the enhanced service level agreement, because as you, as you kind of alluded to, clients expect more and they expect different. So with our, our business planning process, I have my financial advisors tell me what goals they want to set for themselves. And of course, we start with the production goal. Now, I know some of my colleagues have said, well, isn't that dangerous to ask the, the advisors to set their own production goal? I will say in the almost 10 years I've been doing this, I've never had a financial advisor give me a goal less than what I was going to assign them. So it's pretty safe. But we turn that production goal into an activity-based goal. And then we turn that activity-based goal into a discussion about the client service level agreement. How do you want to treat your best clients, your A clients? It becomes very obvious to them that they need to do more business with A-type clients. How do we want to attract more of those clients? And they start to realize the time constraint that comes from servicing some of their lower level clients. That's when the light bulb starts to turn on. Now, as we determine the service level agreement, it's important to build out a calendar, a marketing plan, be very intentional about when they're going to conduct their reviews. We want to put it on the calendar. If they want to schedule a client appreciation event. We want to put that on the calendar. And then from that, great service is determined months in advance. And that's why it's important to put things on a calendar. For example, hosting a great client appreciation event in October, that means selling it during your July review meetings, sending out your invitations in September, booking the location well in advance, and making sure that you have a speaker and an event planned well in advance. Or if you have someone who's, who's a financial advisor and say for their A clients, they're willing to attend appointments with their, their best client CPAs or attorneys. Now, obviously you can't do this with everyone, but it does take some planning to make sure that they're available so they can be a great resource for their clients during that busy tax season. So to go back to your comment earlier, Scott, I think um, the important thing here is the advisors really determined for themselves that the majority of the profitable business comes from these A-type clients, and they're more likely and apt to, to want to uh, 
segment those those lower clients to another more automated or another uh, a group like we have called the Middleburg Financial Client Group, which is more of a phone-based financial advisor group to properly serve that channel. I know that Steve, uh, who's, who's also on here, was able to successfully do this when he was a program manager. And maybe Steve, you can, you can talk about some of the things that work well for you. Yeah. You know, Paul, you bring up a great point when you said, you know, a lot of these things, they start with the financial advisor. It's got to be their buy-in. And, you know, the thing that we all know, guys, about good financial advisors is the DNA of these folks, they're very competitive. And so I used to ask those certain advisors when I was getting segmentation off the ground, I would ask them point blank, tell me what you do that's different than that, you know, uh, uh, Edward Jones, Ameriprise, Wells Fargo advisor down the street. Because to your point, Scott, you know, the question about higher expectations from our clients, we do have to out hustle and, and do it better than our competitors. And when you're sitting with 500, 600, 700 households, it's just simple math. You cannot do a financial plan and meet with clients doing reviews, whether it's a financial review or a relationship review, and do everything that comes uh, for that client when you have that many clients in your book. And so if, if they cannot articulate how they're different from their competitors in town, then we just simply need to start looking at reducing the number of households, show the revenue, the very little bit of revenue that comes from the bottom half of the book, so that they can start to, as I say, out-hustle the competitors down the street. And so, Paul, a great point. The FAs really started this. It was, it was their buy-in. And when we could show them on paper uh, how many households they were removing and the little bit of revenue that was going with it, uh, they were bought in. And at that point, it just kind of took off from there. And uh, the rest of the advisors on the team followed suit. Interesting. So, so let, me just, let me just ask a basic question. So if you look at your best advisors, <clears throat> how many households are they servicing? So your, your most productive advisors, about how many households are in their book? Well, Scott, if you're asking me when I used to run the program at Bremer Bank, our average, our average household count was 535 households per book of business. Yeah. And so your, your higher producing advisors, did they have less than that or more than that? Uh, they had less than that. The highest producers had less households. Of course they did, right? <laughs> and, and, and they never once asked if they could have those small accounts back six months or 12 months later. Not one time did they ever ask. So Yeah. No, it's interesting. I mean, you said uh, do the math, right? And the, and the math is, is pretty simple. I, I can uh, make a real good case that the average advisor has about fifteen to 1,600 hours per year to work with clients. Um, you know, they have about whatever, I think 2,200 hours per year overall, but they do a lot of other stuff than just working with clients, right? There's a lot of stuff, that, other stuff that takes up their time. So 1,500 hours per year, and it takes an average, if you're really doing your job with a client, it takes an average of eight hours per client per year. So you do that math and it's less than 200 that they can handle, right? Now, if they're leveraged because they have sales assistance, et cetera, then they can handle a bit more than, than that number. But, you know, 250 is right about, you know, the limit, right? That's, that's the sweet spot for most productive advisors out there. So, you know, how do we get them there is a question, but you've answered, you've answered some of that already. So this leads us into uh, another aspect of this discussion because, um, Paul, you had implied that, you know, the size of each account uh, is one of the levers, the more the better, right? So, so the, the, the question I have is, 
do the majority of your advisors manage the majority of their clients' investable assets? And if not, why? I'm going to put two questions together here. So that's part A of the question. And part B of the question is, assuming that that's an objective, right? Because in my book, you are only a trusted advisor if you're managing the majority of your clients' investable assets. Because if you're not, somebody else is. You're an afterthought, right? So that's the first part of the question. Second part of the question is, how do you get to the point where you're managing the majority of your clients' investable assets? And I posit that a significant part of the answer there is by doing an extremely good job in the discovery process, which is ongoing. It's not a one and done, right? You're, you should always be in the discovery process with your clients as their lives evolve. So, um, Scott, let me, let me cue it up to you for a second. I know the rest of you have some thoughts on that as well, but, but Scott, I think you had some thoughts on in, you know, increased client expectations that might relate to some of this stuff. Uh, Scott, it's a very good question. And at Addison Avenue, we really focus on four major areas each year, and they're all designed to support our advisors and their clients. First is to enhance our high-performance culture, and we do this through training, career progressions, mentoring, team retention, compensation, and recognition is important as well. Second, we retain our clients and our assets. We do this through client engagement activities that complement each financial advisor's unique business model because they are like entrepreneurs within our system. We grow new relationships through expansive marketing campaigns and our employer group engagement, member and prospect education, and referral sourcing. And the fourth item is we optimize our tools and resources, which creates the capacity that enables us to continue to grow. What may be unique to us, Scott, is that we have a two-person centralized, exclusively dedicated call center that has expertise in program management, operations, compliance, sales, marketing, and technical support. We spent most all of last year embracing client segmentation, uh, not only defining it, but implementing it. And by putting it into practice, it allowed us to define client service levels based upon those client segments. This serves several purposes. It gave our advisors a method by which to think about their clients beyond just assets under management and revenue. It defined what levels of service they could expect and what the advisor could feasibly deliver. It created some consistency among the 30 advisors as well, while, while still allowing a ton of flexibility in their practice by playing to their strengths. We 100% support our advisor's entrepreneurial approach to their business. Take this, add in a ton of resources from Raymond James in the form of systems, tools, product training, administrative support, communication pieces to support service levels, and finally the support from sales and operations for successful execution. And that you have it, that's our recipe for success. So let me, let me ask you, there, there's, there's one thing you said that's uh, kind of one of my passions <clears throat> because it's, it's, it's complicated yet it's elegant if you do it right and that's client segmentation, right? Because it presents a bunch of challenges. So, so if, you're, if you're doing client segmentation properly, one of the things that falls out of client segmentations is that your advisors 
they go upstream, right? They end up servicing uh, those members that have a higher degree of needs because their asset situation is just more complicated, more sophisticated, whatever. But anyway, the point is they end up working with higher net worth people. So then you have to backfill. You have to figure out how to serve, right? The, the, uh, the middle market and the emerging affluent if you don't have advisors that fit that slot. And, and maybe you do, I don't know, but maybe you have associate advisors or sales assistants that whatever. So have you experienced that as you, as you segmented your clients, you have service levels for uh, agreements for each, each level of segments. And then you realize that, well, we can't ignore the middle market. So how are we going to service that? Is that, has that been a, a challenge? Um, I don't know if challenge is the right word, Scott. Certainly, it brings our model into clearer focus. And by that, what I mean is that um, obviously the advisors are probably going to pay a little closer attention to their larger clients. Um, but that middle segment, and especially being a credit union, uh, we owe a certain level of service to every single member and client that we have. So having said that, we make sure that we have licensed sales assistants that can service every tier of client. And we also have relationship managers and they act kind of as our farm system within our organization. And they're available to help each one of our advisors as well to make sure that no segment of our population, of our member population goes unserved. That's cool. I do. So, and do you have, uh, you know, I know we're in COVID time, so all advisors are remote, but in normal times, do you also have a, a team of remote advisors that, that might focus on that segment? We do have um, our relationship managers, which is a group of four to five individuals that act as our farm system that we can upstream at any point to be full-fledged, full-service advisors. And they're the ones that remotely service every single tier of our, um, of our client base. Yeah, it sounds like you have a, a, a rigorous plan and some good teamwork in place. So let me, um, let me throw the same question out to the rest of you, Gary. I know you had some, some thoughts here. So question really originated from you know, managing the majority of your clients' investable assets and really leveraging the discovery process. So um, I'd love to hear from Molly on that, but Gary, why don't, why, don't you, uh, why don't you take the next swing at that one? Well, the discovery process is so important in a variety of ways because it allows your client to get a chance to speak and you gain goodwill and understanding of your client as they're explaining their current situation, their future plans, their family dynamic, their feelings about risk. This all comes out in the discovery process and it doesn't happen quick. You may not become the trusted advisor with all the assets in the initial meeting. But if you're a process-driven advisor, over time and you have a repeated process in which you meet with that client on a regular basis, you can win all the assets and become the trusted advisor. But it takes time and consistency because the more that you meet with the client, the deeper you gain in the relationship. And over time, you'll win all the assets and be that trusted advisor with all the assets. It takes time, but it can easily happen. Yeah. And you know what, Gary? So tell me if you agree. Um, absolutely, it takes time. But the other thing that it takes uh, is being a smart advisor as it relates to your book of business, because mm -hmm. there are definitely a set of clients that you want to stay with 
follow up with, ask those next level of questions of once you have some of their assets, right? And really start developing a game plan with them. And if you're spread too thin, you're going to forget about those clients that really have, you know, the type of a need that you should be servicing because you're busy with some of the transactional stuff on the other end of your book. And, and, and then you just, you kind of blow what you just described, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does take time. It, it takes follow-up and it takes focus, but it takes that with the right segment of your book, right? And as you revisit those clients with your goal planning and monitoring software, you're yep. updating the information. And the more that you update that information, it, the client understands that you really know them and understand them and it deepens that relationship and it's much easier to ask them to move those um, assets over to your management. Yeah. And you know, this has proven itself during this current crisis, right? I mean, it's actually a really good time to gather assets. And if you have clients, if you're an advisor and you have clients that, that have a plan and you're working with that plan, it's much easier to talk to those clients during this crisis and say, don't worry, we have a plan and we're, we're working through it and everything will work out just fine. Right. Right. Uh, so there's, there's such benefit to that type of approach. So let me get thoughts from the rest of you in that regard you know, the discovery process, managing the majority of client assets. I'm assuming that's an important objective for your advisors, right? Paul, I see you shaking your head. That's right, Scott. Yeah, very, very important because, well, with the discovery process, it's one of the few parts of the financial planning process that you can kind of control in the entire bank and it becomes part of your bank's story. From a teller all the way up to a commercial banker, you can have them participate in that process. And really the clients are the ones who are dictating that because I know what they've said to our financial advisors many, many times that we ask for additional information is, well, shouldn't you already know that as part of my my bank or my organization? So part of our program, we set out to, to try and standardize our financial planning process throughout the entire bank and, and bring in as many bank partners as possible. The very first step is the discovery process, collecting the data, determining expectations, prioritizing goals. Throughout our bank, we use a two-page form that allows everyone in the bank to contribute the information that we need on the client. The second part is the design of the plan, focusing on review of a financial status, retirement plans, investment evaluation, risk management and insurance, and estate and legacy planning. Then the third part, the implementation process, and the fourth part, the monitoring and management of the plan. By having a a repeatable process, a lot like what Gary said, it does make the story easy to tell. It helps our bank partners feel a lot more engaged because they know how they can insert themselves into the process and, uh, and certainly helps the client holistically. Yep, absolutely. So, so let's, I'm going to shift gears a little bit because the stuff we've talked about being successful with it means that you have the right advisors in the seats, right? Because they not only have to buy into it, but they have to execute. Um, so uh, I'm getting to recruiting. So I'd, I'd like to uh, hear from you guys if, uh, if you've had a recruiting advantage in any way. And, you know, if you have a- any recruiting thoughts that relate to making sure that you have the right ad- advisors in the seat. And, um, I think, Gary, you had uh, some thoughts that you wanted to lead off with, and then maybe, Mike, you, you had some thoughts to add as well. Sure. I think recruiting is really the heart of everything that we do. What we want to do to attract people is we have to create a work environment where they want to be. We want happy employees, recruiting happy employees. 
And I guess the philosophy that we try to take is we want to create an independent field as though they're a Raymond James independent advisor that happens to be working in a bank. And what I find is what they want is they want to feel independent. They also want to feel supported. They want to have resources and administrative support to get the job done and serve their clients. If we can recruit someone that may know someone that works here already and they know people, they're seeking that type of environment. But there's a huge advantage when you hire someone that already knows people before they get here. And uh, we found that that works well. And of course, I like to engage our area bank executives into the recruiting process to gain buy-in. If you can just hit those types of things, hire the right people, look for people that you know, look for people that want to feel independently, that have a, an entrepreneur mindset, they're very self-reliant. They work very well in our system and um, engaging the bank executives in that process. You can get the right people because there's a lot of advisors out there that are looking for an environment that's supportive and encouraging. Yeah. Yeah. And I agree. Engaging the bank executives can really make a, uh, a difference. It can leave a very good impression with those you're trying to recruit. Mm -hmm. um, Mike George, you have some thoughts and then uh, Michael T, I think you do as well. Yeah, thanks, Scott, and uh, totally agree with Gary, and I think our biggest advantage has been uh, leveraging the name of Raymond James. I mean, let's face it, advisors want flexibility, freedom, and control, and all, it's hard to create that all the time in a bank environment. We're not really soliciting a lot of other bank transactional advisors. We're really trying to build that alignment. We've recruited some independents. We've recruited some folks from different practices, but we're part of also part of brokerage protocol, which allows us to help transition uh, advisors' books to us. And really what the standout is, is Raymond James. They have a strong brand name. We have had a lot of success with their transition team early in the process. So we get advisors on the phone to learn a little bit about how they would transition the book and how they could help get a client's over to their new, their new practice. Uh, and then we leverage AMS, uh, you know, the, the advisory platform. It stands out compared to other advisory platforms. And we leverage that as a, an opportunity to engage uh, with people uh, that are out in our five-state footprint. And then finally, we promote the technology and the capabilities of Raymond James. I mean, they're investing tons of, into software that we couldn't do at Fulton Bank. So partnering in that together, we build a pitch book, we leverage that, and we connect throughout our five-state footprint on an ongoing basis. And really, the, the value prop is the partnership with Raymond James, and that's really what's helped us achieve uh, the success we've had over the last uh, three to five years of bringing on new advisors. Nice. And, and you mentioned the pitch book. Sometimes that gets taken for granted, right? That's a very interesting concept because we were talking before about standardizing parts of the process and the benefit of doing that. And I'm not sure how many firms have given enough thought to standardizing the recruiting process from a pitch standpoint. So that's very interesting that you have a pitch book. Usually you hear that term from startup companies that are pitching for <laughs> some venture capital, right? Um, I haven't heard it used in the context that you just used it, and I love it. So that's, that's very cool. Uh, all right, so Mike T., I wanted to get some thoughts from you, then, then, uh, then Paul, then Scott. Thanks, Scott. You know, I, I, I certainly, I think uh, Mike, Mike and uh, Gary brought up some great points. Absolutely, recruiting, getting the right people in the seat is key to the success of the program. And, you know, I think that, you know, my program, we do have some competitive advantages that, that we look to leverage all the time. 
I think the, the first is the bank itself. And again, we're kind of a, a bigger fish in a small pond over in Hawaii. Um, first Hawaiian Bank is, is just uh, key to foundational to the community that we serve and frankly has a great reputation. Um, the opportunities to work with the bankers and partnership really is attractive for a lot of uh, folks that we're looking at to potentially join our firm. Second, and I certainly would agree with what Mike had mentioned, the, the Raymond James platform is a huge selling point for us. The technology, the products, the services, reporting, everything, it, uh, it is a key factor when we look to talk to other advisors. Uh, they like what they see, and it's something that has absolutely been an outstanding partnership for us. So our value prop, a lot of times it's about the opportunity, it's about the products and services, and then getting that message out. You know, I had mentioned previously, we have a, an experienced management team. Um, our two uh, sales managers, our regional business managers, recruiting is key to what they do. And between the two of them, they have over 70 years of experience in financial services. They're very well known in our community. They're very well connected and, and frankly, uh, very well respected. So it's easy for them to kind of make contact with a lot of folks and kind of tell our story. Um, really what we're driving to a lot of times is just to be the employer of choice. And if we can be the employer of choice for, for these folks, uh, it gives us kind of that opportunity to be selective. And I know that every time we, we do an interview, the, the very first question, the key questions, it is all about you know, the bank culture, the program culture, the direction that we're wanting to drive, and is there a cultural alignment? Yeah, yeah, nice. You mentioned culture, which is uh, another thing that's often overlooked, right? When you're, when you're talking to uh, pros prospective advisors that you'd like to hire, making sure there's a cultural match is critical. But in order to make sure there's a cultural match, you have to define your culture in a way that they understand it, right? And that becomes a filtering mechanism because if you describe your culture to a potential advisor and they don't like it, well, <laughs> you've saved yourself a lot of <laughs> wasted time and money probably, right? Uh, move, move on to the next one. So that's, you know, Mike, I, I, I'd love to know if that's part of your pitch book too, describing the, the, the culture of Fulton. But let's hold off on that for a second because I know, Paul, you have some thoughts you wanted to contribute. Thank you. Well, I think uh, recruiting's in some ways has gotten a lot more difficult because it's really narrowed the focus down to a, a different type of advisor than in the, in the past. I mean, in the past, you used to primarily look at what's your AUM? How much assets under management do you think you can bring over? What's your trailing 12? Now those two metrics pretty much get your foot in the door for an interview to show that, that you're, you're competent and able to close business. But really going forward, we're looking for more of a, a trusted advisor someone who can deliver on the, the more standardized client experience across the entire bank, because we're looking for, for folks that will fit in our culture like Mike and Michael have shared. Um, looking at our financial advisors, some of the things that I want to flush out in the interviews are, will these people embrace the key performance indicators that, that do tell me that they're a holistic financial advisor? First off, are you doing financial planning? I think that goes without saying and just asking some qualified questions about that. Then depending on their situation, I want to know what kind of referrals are they giving and what's the volume of those referrals? If they're a bankrupt, what's your volume of referrals to your bank partners? If they're not a bankrupt, talk to me about working with centers of influence and partnering with, with other professionals to deliver a holistic client experience. Conversely, I want to know what kind of referrals they're receiving. And I want some anecdotal evidence and I want some numbers to because that tells me that they're a great team player and that they're being brought on as a subject matter expert. 
And then I also want to ask them about their insurance business because uh, the number of insurance cases is really a, a key performance indicator for me to know if, if they're a financial advisor or if they're a true life planner. Yeah, that's a tough one. <laughs> because Scott, most. Was, Go ahead, Gary. Yep. I was just going to add, uh, it used to be a lot of bank programs. I used to hire everybody that wouldn't make it at Please excuse the interruption, but we had to pump the brakes here for an editorial note. The point Gary Collier is making is that it used to be the case that banks hired brokers that couldn't make it in the wirehouses. However, Gary named the wirehouses, and for a variety of reasons, we thought it best to avoid those names. With Raymond James and the resources we have, we can compete with everybody. And if you have this great bank environment where you can get the synergies from the bank and you have the great work environment, we can recruit any size producer out there competitively and have everything to offer anymore. That's good stuff. So let's shift gears a little bit and talk about differentiation. So I think it's more important than ever these days to have some point of differentiation. And if you're an advisor, you know, what is that? What is your point of differentiation? And I know if you ask that question to a lot of advisors, they say, um, you know, getting to know my clients. Well, if they all say that, then it's not a point of differentiation, really. So it's really, how do you get to know your clients and what, what the client experience is like, right? I, I think, and this is just my opinion, you can let me know if you guys agree. I think not enough advisors think about the client experience, right? The client experiences is what their clients go through what they experience in working with that advisor. And that client experience has to reflect the level of professionality that's appropriate for that advisor. And most of the time, advisors leave the client experience to chance. They don't standardize it. They don't have a pitch book, so to speak, for how they're going to execute. So we're talking about process, right? And I've said this before, in my mind, the, the process that an advisor uses is their product, right? Their product are not the investment you know, products that they sell or the advisory accounts, that's somebody else's product. Their product is their process. It's the process with which they help their clients. So if you're an advisor and you think about it from that perspective, the process is my product, how do I improve my process? You know, that's, that's a really good way to think about building your business. Are there ways in which you're helping your advisors improve their process since that is their single value proposition? That's the only way that they will be able to differentiate themselves, right? If they have a really good process. So thoughts in that regard? And Gary, I, I, I saw you raise your hand, so uh, well, let me call on you. It's a very simple, <laughs> I think, the, work in, the environment that you create for a client meeting, whether it's a Zoom meeting, uh, or it's face-to-face, -face. there's a structure and a professionalism that's required of organization. And I believe that the uh, goal planning and monitoring, our GPM system, provides that um, backbone of the structure. It's where everything starts. And, um, and you work from that. Then we have the various reports and so forth to do a, a client progress meeting. But you're exactly right. You have to create an environment for that professionalism image that you want to portray uh, whether it be a Zoom meeting or an interactive meeting in an office uh, with a uh, watch, sharing a monitor with a client or a prospect. Thanks, Gary. Scott Jenner, I think you have some thoughts you'd like to add. Uh, Scott, as you know, Addison Avenue is a division of First Tech Federal Credit Union. 
whose membership is largely comprised of technology companies, there's an expectation from those members and our clients, frankly, that we present top-tier technology in both our client experience and the tools our advisors use to support them. Uh, our broker-dealer helps us meet this demand by providing resources that we need to focus on three primary areas. First is the client experience. We have to have an online platform that integrates investment account balances and history within our online banking platform. There is the client access and vault, currently used by slightly more than a half of our clients. It provides more in-depth access to client accounts and performance, as well as a vault, which is really important for secure message storage and exchange of documents with their advisor. Second is the advisor experience. With our commitment to advisor flexibility in their practice, we provide them with an annual technology budget, and they spend this as they see fit. This is in addition to the company-provided laptops and cell phones. It's all necessary to enable them to work anywhere and to promote the use of mobile technology. Continuing with the advisor experience is RJ's robust CRM which allows them to automate prospect and client interactions, workflows, and segment their book for service optimization. And third is the program and marketing arena. We work closely with our enterprise data analytics team to integrate our investment services data into the enterprise data warehouse. Using this valuable credit union and investment program data, we are able to create models to identify opportunities and generate targeted marketing campaigns. And we also leverage the same data in new ways in an attempt to predict client and prospect behavior and act accordingly. So you're doing data mining. It's such a um, underused technology. Just give me, uh, if you can, a few examples of the type of things that get flagged for your advisors to act on. Well, in working with uh, the folks in the EDW, which is the Enterprise Data Warehouse, um, we're able to accumulate all of the information about every single one of our members. And this is really gives us a lot of power. Um, and power through the knowledge of knowing your member so that we can almost anticipate which product um, or service might be the next in line for our members. And this, this streamlines the marketing and the touch point process um, as we think about what campaigns to deliver. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's cool. And that's really valuable. And, you know, I see the future of a lot of successful programs dependent on their ability to mine the data from the, uh, the whole organization, right? There's just so much valuable data there that can create and what I'll call triggers for, you know, investment professionals to service more needs of the members of, of, of an organization. So that's good that you've already embraced that. This, so many programs are so far behind in that. So good, good for you. We have invested so much in our EDW campaign to the point where every single manager within the organization really has, has committed to making sure that by populating the warehouse with a multitude of information, that by knowing our member, we're going to be a step ahead of a lot of other financial institutions because we'll have that in-depth knowledge of each one of our members so that we'll know how to best service them. I'll tell you, Enterprise Data Warehouse for us is huge. Yeah, no, that's good. Good for you guys. 
Well, I, I'd like to maybe use that as a, uh, a dovetail into the last question that I'll ask you guys. I was compelled when I read that bank investment consultant top program managers piece and realized how many Raymond James program managers are in there. It really compelled me to want to hear about the partnership between your programs and Raymond James. So kind of in summary, I'd love to go around the horn with all you guys and just get your thoughts on the advantages in the partnership that you have with Raymond James that's really enabled you guys to be some of the most productive programs in the bank space. Do one of you want to kick that one off, Paul? You know, in the, the movie, The Matrix, the main character, if you haven't seen it, is given the option of a red pill where their eyes are open and they discover a, a lot of, of new things or a blue pill where they go back into just their life the way it was and live in ignorance. I kind of liken Raymond James as to taking the red pill because I, I would have a hard time going back to the way things were. Um, Raymond James really helps me focus on business strategy, business development, and practice management. Whereas before I can say I probably spent way, way too much time on just the administration of the business, I get to outsource that now and focus on all the stuff that's important to grow our firm, but also to spend more time with financial advisors and clients. Um, just to use an example, for the Reg BI, I was talking to a colleague at another program and he told me he spent over 120 hours working with his team to craft a viable form CRS or client relationship summary. You know, Raymond James took care of that for us <laughs> and, uh, and, and gave us a lot of preparation on how to use it. The other thing that's been mentioned is technology. It's a huge ask to go to your bank to spend a million dollars on anything. You better get it right. And I know Raymond James spends a, a lot of multiples on that on technology. And, and uh, you know, it's a huge recruiting point and, and something that I don't have to be concerned with because I know the technology is superior and some of the best out there. So um, again, I would just reiterate that the fact that I can spend all my time as a program manager on business strategy, business development, and practice management, uh, it's a huge competitive advantage. All right. I like the red pill. <laughs> Gary, you had some thoughts? Yeah, I was just going to say, um, a young person might ask you, uh, what's the key in, in investment business? I think we'd all say it's, a, it's not an investment business, it's a relationship business. And um, that's exactly what we have with Raymond James. Uh, the relationships are so deep, but uh, Raymond James is not a vendor to us, they're a partner. Uh, the people that we work with from a leadership standpoint, we vacation with them. We know their spouses, we know about their families. And it's gone on for years. And uh, it's so much deeper than that, that the longevity of those relationships makes a difference. In addition to that, uh, when we're recruiting someone, Raymond James is there to help us. We collaborate on that process, but it gives us an advantage. It's a competitive advantage. I doubt any of our Raymond James competitors can match that. Nice. Any of uh, you others want to contribute to that? Scott? Scott, thanks for asking this question because it really does hit right at the heart of our current and future success and the depth of resources at Raymond James that, that really have been key for us. First, a little history. Uh, in 2012, we were in a position where our program was growing at a very rapid rate uh, with our fee-based business around 25% of revenue. We were merging two programs together because of the merger between First Tech Federal Credit Union and Addison Avenue Federal Credit Union. And we needed a sophisticated broker dealer with brand expertise 
product availability, and a support structure with vast resources, and the supervision that we needed to grow. Now, our partnership with Raymond James has been front and center, allowing us to expand the complexity of our offerings, navigate an ever-changing regulatory environment, and attract and retain our advisors. Going into 2013, we had gross trailing 12 of just under $14 million. Now, eight years later, we are looking at gross trailing 12 of almost $29 million, and our fee-based revenue is now at 75%. Frankly speaking, Scott, Raymond James came up huge when we really needed a best-in-class broker-dealer to help us to that proverbial next level. Nice. Good to hear. Michael T.? Yeah. You know, maybe at, at the risk of just kind of reiterating some of the points that were made, this partnership with Raymond James really is invaluable. And I think it's really highlighted in, in two different areas. One is when there's issues and how it's handled is, is truly, it's that partnership. I think everybody drives towards a, a win-win and just the attitude and, and uh, the communication, it, it's very evident that both sides are, are looking for uh, you know, the, the right solution. And, um, you know, there's always that, that give and take. So that, that's one area that the partnership really shines through. And the other area that I think the partnership shines through is clearly, uh, as has been mentioned before, Raymond James has tremendous resources. And to be able to leverage a lot of that expertise, both the technology as well as, you know, things just like portfolio management, all of that sort of thing, really allows us on the ground to, to focus on what's important for us, which is driving client relationships, banker relationships, and so on. So, you know, this, this partnership has been terrific um, and very appreciative of it. All right. So, uh, Steve, can I put you on the spot for, for a minute here? I'm going to ask sure. you the, 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 the final question. So you ran the Bremer Bank program, which, which is a very successful program for a long time in partnership with Raymond James, and you like them so much that you jumped the fence and are now working with Raymond James. So I'd love to get your insights, because now you've been on both sides of the equation, right? Uh, I'd love to get your insights from a, from a partnership standpoint and now being on the other side of the fence, some of those uh, you know, highlights that you've seen from both seats. Well, I'll tell you, having our bank affiliated with Raymond James for 11 and a half years, uh, one of the reasons that we chose the firm was because uh, a couple of things. Number one, the culture in the firm uh, is was very similar to our culture in our Midwest bank. These folks have been at the firm for a long time. There wasn't a lot of turnover. Um, they weren't jumping from one department to another, but they were subject matter experts and they were there to help us. If there was an issue, they owned it and they took it from start to finish Raymond James was never a vendor. You know, our banks have vendors. They have vendors that shred paper. They, they have vendors that do a lot of things. Raymond James was never a vendor. They were a partner. And we collaborated all the time. They were always at the table with me uh, when I needed them. One other point I want to make about collaboration is it's a firm that shares their best practices. There's nobody in the firm that holds their secrets tight to the vest. This group here today, uh, I, I collaborated with them on a regular basis on monthly one-on-ones and we're always sharing ideas. Nobody has all the best ideas and that's why we always got together and helped each other out. So, you know, Raymond James was what I thought they were. And now that I'm, as you said, jumped over the fence and I'm on the inside, it's exactly what I thought it was. I'm glad I did it. And, um, 
you know, it's been, it's been a lot of fun getting to know some other bank programs here within the firm because it is a top-notch firm and watching what has happened with these programs here at, uh, at Raymond James is exactly what we went through at Bremer. Yeah, well, congr- congratulations. That's, that's good to hear and I'm glad, uh, I'm glad it's all working out. So uh, I want to thank all of you and I sincerely appreciate all of you sharing your best practices with us. Uh, I know your insights will be valuable to our listeners. So we wish you continued success. And again, we commend Raymond James for the great work they've done in our channel. So thanks again, everyone, and goodbye for now. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Industry Leadership and Success. We hope you found the discussion enjoyable and valuable. Please subscribe to our podcast and be sure to join us for future episodes. And don't forget to check out two other podcast series, Untangling Fintech and BISA Industry Trend Watch. Finally, we'd like to thank the program managers who joined us today and also express a sincere appreciation to Tim Kilgore and Steve Crutchin of Raymond James for their support of our podcast. Tim, Steve, and the crew at Raymond James have been very helpful and a pleasure to work with. Thank you. This is Bob Patel, and I'll see you next episode.